0: Hello and welcome to Tech Crack, the podcast series brought to you by SyncNI. We are Northern Ireland's leading technology and business media company, and this podcast series will see us interview some of the best, brightest, and most influential thought leaders from across NI's business and tech sectors. Find out more on syncni.com or follow us across our social media channels. And enjoy! This week, I spoke with Ruth McGuinness. She is the new Artificial Intelligence Business Development Director at Kinos. She will also be the chair of the AI in Public Sector and National Data Strategy Session at this year's AICon. It's free, but those who would like to attend must register and it takes place virtually on the 3rd and 4th of December. Ruth talks to me about what we can expect from this year's conference and how artificial intelligence is helping in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Ruth also discusses with me her career in tech so far and coming into Kinos as a COVID joiner in March.
1: So I joined Kinos actually the week after lockdown started. Um, so, I'm a COVID joiner. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's kind of the phrase that we use again, if you haven't actually met anyone in real life. <laughs> so, um, I joined, so I had about a week in the office where I met kind of my immediate team in our um, artificial intelligence team. Um, and then I kind of, because my role is kind of business development, customer facing kind of meeting you know, organizations trying to help them understand, you know, how they can leverage um, artificial intelligence. So a lot of that is kind of face to face. And I kind of expected to be traveling quite a bit. Um, and then we kind of launched into the lockdown. So it's, it's. I guess it's probably a similar story to a lot of people who are in a customer facing role. It's been incredible how quickly businesses have adapted to doing things remotely. Um, and, you know, before I would have thought it inconceivable that you know, a government department or, you know, any other potential customer would jump on a Zoom call to chat to me. It just wasn't something that I think was understood or really considered to be an option. Yeah. So it was very much all face to face. And now, you know, it's everyone's so confident on Zoom. It's kind of a done thing. And I, I can't even see, you know, if if kind of life goes back to normal in the next year, I, I, I'm i really interested to see how it does impact on kind of business development roles and like customer facing rules and whether, this is the new normal or if people will slip back into traveling. Um, I found that it's been busier than ever. Um, And I'm sure a lot of people in um, tech would say the same thing, that kind of COVID as a pandemic has really accelerated the need to adopt technology much quicker. And you're kind of seeing the old barriers that would have been, you know, in the way of adopting tech, kind of just very much falling down because it's a necessity, you know, like sort of moving data off on premise into the cloud so everyone can access it remotely um, and starting to look at new ways of working. And, you know, because because people are working from home, they can't work in the same way and therefore they're experiencing backlogs. And it's about, you know, how do we adapt and be more agile in what we do? And um, so, KNOS have been kind of thriving um, in terms of being able to help customers work smarter over the last eight months and i'm sure other organizations in, in northern ireland can say the same thing so i've been busier than i thought <laughs> um you know which, which is always good because it's meant that i've had the ability to kind of come into a new role and show some success um so it's been great
0: yeah and is this your first sort of role in business development and customer facing or is that like has that been your career history before joining kianos because i know you worked in pwc i think it was
1: Yes. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll maybe talk you through um, kind of my background and how I've got here because I think it's really important to me to help people understand that you can work in tech in different roles and it doesn't mean that you have to be a software engineer. Yeah. Um, and I guess for anyone who's listening to this and is kind of considering what their career could be or even considering a career change, I would say, you know, find find a way to get into tech in any way that you can. Um, so for me, I... Um, so I've kind of been technically minded, you know, since primary school. I was always kind of coding and stuff. Um, but back then, that would have been kind of the nineties. It 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 wasn't seen as a career path, really. As far as I know, it wasn't it wasn't kind of highlighted to me in school as being a kind of a career that I could go down. And um, you know, it was either law or medicine or you know any other vocation. Um, and so I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And um, and then I. To be honest, just because of pure lack of direction, I ended up going down the route of of kind of studying ICT at Ulster. Um, But even then, I I don't think I really thought that it was going to be a career path for me. Uh, I just knew that I really loved technology and I was really interested in it. Um, I ended up after that going into Danske Bank. um, And I think that's kind of a reflection of that lack of direction, not really knowing what I wanted to do. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't necessarily passionate about a career in tech at that stage. I hadn't figured it out. Um, so joined kind of the HR department in Danske Bank and very quickly kind of got involved in kind of helping them improve their processes using, um, using .NET. Um, and it was just kind of, I've realized that in every role that I've went to, into, even if it wasn't explicitly meant to be a technology role, I've always ended up kind of doing some sort of efficiency or technology kind of slanted task. And um, so I was in Danske Bank for a number of years, and then I kind of thought to myself, you know, I really love doing this, and how do I make this happen? And um, so I applied for a software developer job in a local technology company called Tesco Me Limited. So I don't know if you're um, familiar with Tesco Me. Um, they're, they're kind of, uh, they're a small company based out of Hillsborough, um, and they develop kind of, um, web applications for local government. So if you're, you know, filling in a building control application or you're applying for a dog license or you're interacting with your council in Northern Ireland, it's it's usually Tes- Tesco B technology. And um, so they're kind of this um, amazing behind the scenes technology provider that most people haven't heard of. And um, anyway, so <laughs> I, I, um, applied for software developer job was interviewed by Rick Hazard, who's their CTO, and by Niall Adams, who was their kind of um, sales director at the time. Um, And kind of at the end of the interview, they said, you know, we actually have a business development role um, open instead, would you consider that? Um, And and I said, yes. Um, Never looked back. Uh, So, it gave me the opportunity, and this is kind of what I would recommend to everyone. I would say, if you're looking to kickstart your career in tech, you know, don't go to a big four, and um, don't go to a huge organization, and um, go, to, go to a scale up, you know, a company that's found its feet, it's not a startup, um, but there's loads of potential for you to take on, you know, seniority, leadership responsibilities, and really shape the direction of the company early in your career in a way that you wouldn't get in a big four. And um, that's exactly what I did in Tesco I was there for um, four years uh, in kind of business development and kind of different roles, to be honest, because when you're in a small company, you wear many hats. Um, yeah. And then I was asked to uh, join the board of directors of Tesco Me, um, I guess, as a reflection of um, kind of loyalty to the company and passion for it. Um, so I kind of accepted that. So I kind of went from not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life um, to being on the board of, of a company that was growing really quickly um, at the age of, kind of 25, 26. Um, so I was really fortunate to be put in that position. And, and I really kind of credit tasco Me and the leadership team there, including Rick and Roisin, who's their program director, um, for, for kind of shaping my career, to be honest, because they built such an amazing team really diverse team that I never really felt like there was anything that I couldn't achieve. Um, didn't matter that I was a woman in tech and every to be honest, ever thought about it. <laughs> um, you know, it, it didn't really matter that I didn't have the background. Uh, it didn't matter that I didn't have board experience. You know, I think it just reflects the opportunity that's out there in Northern Ireland in, in tech companies that you can, you know, if you're brave enough to take that step. Um, so moving on from, from kind of Tusco me where I really think I learned so much from, from an, an incredible team. And I still, I still say it was, you know, the best job that I ever had. Um, I then kind of just recognized my own interests at that stage. And, you know, I knew that I wanted to work in tech, but actually I was really interested in starting to look at more emerging tech um, and starting to look to the future. Um, and that's kind of what drove me to start to look at a role in PwC. Um, because they were setting up a new team in Northern Ireland for emerging technologies, um, including artificial intelligence. Um, And that's just something that I'm really personally interested in. So I I thought, you know, when else am I going to get the opportunity to get a job in AI in Northern Ireland? And it's, you know, there's not that much opportunity, or there wasn't at that stage. Um, So I took, took a role there, and the role was kind of, it was a more delivery facing role. So I stepped away from business development um, and it was about building up a team. Um, so when I joined, it was a team of about 11. By the time I left, it was a team of around 70. Um, so people in different technology roles, kind of RPA developers, AI, kind of data scientists, and um, data analysts. Um, so I was helping build the team with Andrew Jordan, who is still there today at PWC. Um, and we built an amazing team, and the focus of the team was using emerging tech to actually improve PwC internally and uh, in what they were doing as an organization. So it was a really amazing role and opportunity. Um, and after I was there for a couple of years in a kind of a delivery role and kind of a, I guess, a leadership role in building the team, was um, I kind of met Austin Tanny. So I don't know if you, if you've. You know Austin well, Nate?
0: Yeah, I do. <laughs> I've <I'm> doing times. <that. laughs> He's great.
1: Yeah, so um Austin um, is head of AI at Kainos. Um, So um Austin was kind of looking for someone to join the leadership, the AI leadership team in Kinos. Um, and I kind of thought this is my even more of an opportunity for me to completely specialise in exactly what I want to do with my career. And it's becoming really clear to me now that I want to work in AI. Um, so kind of interviewed with Austin and Kianos and to be honest you know Kianos is one of the best tech companies in Northern Ireland and um, for me to have thought that I would get a role there you know I haven't started in Danske Bank um, all those years ago I, you know it's I kind of feel like I've landed the company that I'd, I'd want to work for for life to be honest um, after being here eight months Um, so my role is fundamentally business development it's Growing, growing the team, trying to generate more artificial intelligence work for Canos to do. Um, it's been really challenging um, because you know it's an emerging tech field. But it's, I think, what I've seen over the last year or so is that AI probably at the time that I was in PwC was seen as more of a like a shiny kind of R&D thing that we just did to kind of impress customers. Um, You know, and I think most people probably still recognize it as that. Um, But to be honest, you know, probably helped by COVID. um, It's the only thing that COVID has helped is that it's really accelerated the adoption of technologies like AI. Um, And it's become, become, you know, a critical component of a lot of the work that we're doing in government at the minute, um, which has been incredible. Um, So that's kind of been my pathway, starting from not really knowing what I was doing. You know through to doing kind of different leadership roles and small companies large tech companies and um, big fours and um, to where i am today which is kind of leading an ai team and um, which is where i wanted to get to and I'm, I'm absolutely loving it
0: yeah and just whenever you whenever you joined pobc and you were sort of saying that you know back then you just wanted to do something with emerging tech and artificial intelligence and there wasn't really there at that stage there wasn't a lot of opportunities in that sort of field within Northern Ireland and um, can you just ask like ar- around what year was that?
1: Um, so that would have been about da, 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 about three or four years ago um, and kind of I guess let me kind of rephrase that I think at that time AI was being done in kind of little pockets of excellence in Northern Ireland and I think that you really needed to have credentials you know to move into your role you know, in that field at that time. Um, And it's, I think you would have seen kind of data scientists or kind of PhD um, doctors who specialise in that field working in AI at that time. And so it was a really specialist field and I wouldn't have been able to have kind of transitioned across from, you know, a tech company that was doing kind of software for the government into an AI role without the credentials to back me up. Um, And I think that me moving into kind of PwC in a more generalist role but getting the opportunity to specialize in AI within that area and then kind of allowed me to credentialize myself and at that time I think that AI was becoming more commonplace and you were starting to see the types of roles within that field evolve so what would have been just data scientists at the time and you know or doctors of AI you were starting to see kind of a wider variety of roles that, that people can do if they want to work in that field. So you can, you know you're seeing technical architects, you're seeing product designers for AI, you're seeing kind of business development roles, you're seeing all of the the kind of typical tech roles that you would expect within the field, but it's it's but kind of associated with working within the artificial intelligence field. So over the last three to four years, you've seen it move from that very specialist kind of research um field into something that's. Um, you know a really credible career path for a wider variety of people and so it created an opportunity then for me to to kind of start to leverage the opportunity to specialize in it which has been great
0: yeah no definitely like just even to emphasize your point there Ruth for even like three or four years ago it's not a long time really but the acceleration of the amount of AI roles and just the amount of work that's being done with artificial intelligence in Northern Ireland since then. Like what you were saying, you know, it used to be sort of like it was shiny and, and scientific and almost like a novelty. But now I think it's really come under the forefront of tech. And again, like what you said, like not that COVID is positive, but that's one of the positives <laughs> that has come out of it and that it's really shown people because maybe people would have been sceptical and companies and big corporations would have been sceptical about using it before or looking to develop roles in that, but now they're really seeing the importance of it because of the amount of things AI has helped with do throughout COVID, even with like detecting fake news and uh, being trialed in, in drug trials for COVID and different molecules and e- even things like tracking all the data of the positive COVID cases worldwide. I mean, there's nothing really, you know, could, would you say there's nothing really AI can't can't really do at the minute on a global scale?
1: Yeah, that, well, there's, there's always some limitations, obviously, to any technology. But the thing that I think what the COVID has really done for AI is that it's helped people understand genuinely what it is and what it can do. And um, so it's, it's moved AI away from this kind of R&D type, sci-fi type concept into being people are starting to fundamentally understand what it is, which is just that it's just using data you know to predict trends um, it's using data to kind of make decisions um, in an automated way so it's very much just focused around better leveraging the data that all organizations hold um, and and I think COVID has been kind of the perfect use case for demonstrating how that can actually work at a global scale and um, um, where we're kind of seeing departments leverage you know data analytics and data science and AI um, for COVID related reasons, they're also then starting to look at it for just general operation um, reasons. You know, how can we make our organizations more efficient using data and using AI? So um, it's, it's not that, it, that there's, there's nothing it can't do because there's definitely limitations um, with AI and, that, and there's so much, you know, focus and money put into research and development for really understanding what are the limitations of AI. Um, and, and some of the limitations to be honest are just computing power. Um, the amount of power that it needs to kind of do some of the more complex use cases for AI are are a limitation for a lot of organizations but um, the kind of day-to-day efficiencies that you can gain from better use of data um, is definitely being more kind of commonly adopted across organizations not just in kind of public sector but also the private sector as well Um, so yeah you're right.
0: Yeah and just on that because you talk about the public sector, I know you're the chair of AI in the public sector and the National Data Strategy Session at this year's AI Con. What can we expect from this year's AI Con?
1: Yes, okay, thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak about that. I feel like that's per- yeah, what I should be focusing on in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so um, AI Con, so the first ever AICon was last year. So AICon for anyone that doesn't know, it's Northern Ireland's Artificial Intelligence Conference. So the name is kind of explanatory in itself. Um, So the first one was was kind of was launched last year by Tom Gray and Austin Tanny. And the reason that the conference was launched was just a recognition of um, the potential for Northern Ireland to be the centre of excellence for artificial intelligence and kind of trying to position Northern Ireland on, on the global stage for being a leader in that space, because there's so many organisations um, in Northern Ireland that are, that are specialists in AI that maybe you know, people aren't aware of. Um, and the industry is growing in Northern Ireland. There's more and more organisations doing this type of work. There's more focus on it at an academic level within Queen's and Ulster. Um, and, you know, some of the large organizations you might not even realize are doing AI or doing AI, like Allstate and Liberty and even the big four like PwC. Um, so it's, it, it was kind of us kind of trying to create a, create a community, really, to say, look, AI in Northern Ireland exists um, and here's all the fantastic things that we're doing. So this is the second year of AICon. So it's taking place on the 3rd and 4th of December this year. And it's fully remote, of course, um, because of COVID. Um, but the, th- the kind of opportunity that presents itself with COVID is that last year we were kind of limited to, you know, we had to fill a venue in, you know, in, in Northern Ireland, and it had to be people physically attending, and then we had to fly speakers over, but kind of one of the other kind of positives of COVID is that you can take something like this and put it on the global stage, because it's just like your podcast, it kind of opens it up to an unlimited audience of people and it becomes really easy to get speakers from all over the world um, because it's all taking place remotely. So we're going kind of, it's gonna be much, much bigger than it was last year. And I think that just recognizes how quickly AI is accelerating. Um, So we've got a really amazing kind of jam packed agenda um, over the two days, which is kind of showcasing some really amazing speakers. Um, local and across the UK and globally and um, so we've got speakers from um, Google and um, we've got speakers from um, Cheltenham Science Festival, the Government of Estonia, we've got people from lots of the amazing startups in Northern Ireland um, including Humane and Talic Pig um, and we're also hearing from Digital Catapult and um, there's kind of different themes throughout the different days. So there's a focus on AI in financial services with Fiona Brown and ta- the tactics and there is um, kind of a focus on AI impact on arts and culture as well. Um, and, just, we're, we're kind of also going to hope to use the conference as a bit of a launching pad for, for what the strategy for AI in Northern Northern Ireland is over the next few years. So it really, Encourage anyone who kind of is interested in seeing where that is going to go to attend, um, and just to focus on on my my panel session selfishly. So, um, because I'm kind of working in chaos mostly within the public sector, and um, that's going to be the focus of my session. So it's going to be, what is the impact uh, of kind of AI on the public sector, and and more specifically, I'm talking about um, the national data strategy. So. Um, people may or may not have have seen the national data strategy. And it has, so it's a government policy document um, that effectively outlines how the UK can build a world leading data economy. Um, And it kind of sets out some policies and missions that the whole of the UK should consider over the next few years in terms of how they're adopting and leveraging and using data. Um, So it's it's a really significant strategy document. And anyone that's worked in public sector will remember the kind of revolution in government that we saw about five years ago, um, which was kind of everyone knows as digital transformation, which was the kind of government really significantly being encouraged to adopt cloud, um, moving off premise into the cloud. Um, And that was a huge kind of revolution in terms of how government departments were working. And we haven't really seen anything on that scale until now. Um, so the national data strategy sets out you know now that we've moved on to the cloud and we've pulled together all this data what are we doing with it are we using it responsibly are we using it ethically are we using it at all you know what efficiencies can we get from starting to look at this, this in a structured way so it's a really important um, strategy and it's actually open for public consultation at the minute um, which means that anyone within the UK anyone with Northern Ireland can actually go in and air their views in terms of how they think that their data and everyone's data should be leveraged by public sector and the private sector. And um, so the, the kind of purpose of my panel session is to bring together kind of leading voices from not just from the government, but also from industry um, and also from the cloud. And um, so uh, it, it's kind of the purpose of the, the session is, is really just to talk about you know, it's amazing that this strategy has been written and, and it's going to be implemented in the next year or so, but it's it's about understanding from those different individuals um, what are the limitations to us actually achieving this? Because, you know, it's it's fantastic to say that we should all, you know, better leverage our, our data um, to improve society and to improve the economy and to, to, to improve businesses. But, you know, we need to fundamentally acknowledge that there are That there actually are kind of blockers to doing that, you know, including kind of real or perceived legal risks or security risks of sharing data. So how does GDPR actually impact us in a real or perceived way from from better leveraging our data? Um, Is there a lack of incentives for for companies and government to actually start to look at the data that they hold and how they're using it? Um, Do we actually have the skills uh, it's a big question because there's, there, you know, there's definitely a shortage of kind of academics, you know, data scientists in the UK that have the skills um, and the knowledge to, to do the sorts of work that's required. Um, and it's, it's also, do we just, do we have the investment to do this? Because we're, we're asking companies to, to adapt and go above and beyond how they're, they're currently working and including departments and government as well to, to start to work in, in a different way. And do they have... investment to start to do that Um, and then there's just fundamental questions about you know what is what is the governance models you know every organization in the world had to adapt to GDPR you know how now are they going to adapt to not just protecting data and that they hold but actually starting to leverage it in a way that that, that's ethical and explainable as well Um, So there's there's huge huge problems um, at the minute, um, or maybe not problems, but opportunities to overcome. Um, And there's, I think, one of the biggest things that I want to talk about in my panel session is just the the lack of open data sharing across government. Um, And, you know, you'll see the same thing in Northern Ireland um, as well. And it's just, you know, fundamentally, um, government departments do not share data between themselves. Um, And... And that's for all of the reasons that i've just outlined there it's just there's there's you know there's data protection reasons th- that prevents them from doing that there's kind of lack of governance you know who owns the data who's who's controls the data in the organization and um, there's a lot of uncertainty that stops us sharing data in a way that would be so beneficial for for society and um, so i i'm really hoping that it's going to be uh, kind of a really engaging discussion and um, particularly because i've kind of managed to secure some really amazing speakers from um, from government and from a policy perspective, and also from um, uh, Amazon Web Services as well, from a cloud perspective. Um, and I've also got um, a kind of industry speaker from Northern Ireland as well to talk about you know, what are, what are the what's the impacts of the kind of national data strategy from from their perspective. So it's going to be a. 45-minute session um, with me kind of asking questions to the panelists um, and then there's going to be an opportunity for us to open up questions to the floor um, for the audience um, so it's going to be just held on a kind of webinar tool so anyone can ask questions throughout the session and I will read them out at the end um, so I would really encourage people who are interested in how the government might start to leverage citizen data over the next few years. Um, I would encourage you to attend and to get engaged and to kind of keep close to the national data strategy and understand the impact of it and the opportunity the massive opportunity that it presents as well
0: definitely it sounds really interesting and i think people like the general public and people who aren't necessarily in the tech are starting to realize how important like our our data or data is it's sort of the most important it's us you know everyone everyone has data it's not just you know data it's not just numbers and coding you know everyone has personal data and even like things with net netflix documentaries like the social dilemma you know it's all sort of coming to the forefront now and that whole question like what you're talking about there, ethics and, and ethics within data and data sharing and you know like I don't need to tell you Ruth, um, the amount of data breaches even from big firms even since GDPR came in I mean it's not GDPR people have had to adjust but not everyone even the massive corporations that you would expect to they haven't all fully adapted to it yet because you know there are, there are some flaws and people you know people are only human they make mistakes do you see adapt? and i know without giving too much away because you'll be talking about this at your strategy session and um, at AICOM, but do you see how long do you think it will be until this national data strategy is sort of fully and successfully Implicated at least here in Northern Ireland.
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and actually, one of, qu- one of the questions that I'm going to pose um, to the panel because it's not entirely clear at this stage, um, because the National Data Strategy is under consultation, so it's still being kind of, you know, ad- ad- adapted and, and written. So one of the questions that I have is just how do how do we ensure that it meets the needs of all of the UK, including kind of devolved governments? Um, and I think that's a really that's a really important question um sorry what was the question the last weekend, i just kind of went off in a daydream thinking about <laughs> devolved government
0: You're <laughs> i'm the same going off in tangents just basically yeah because how long do you think I mean, oh
1: yes yeah you- yeah how long yeah, yeah. um so uh, yeah how long is piece of string no it's um so there actually is a timetable for the, the national data strategy so it's it's under consultation um, until the 2nd of December. So it's actually closes for public consultation the day before AICon. Um, so anyone and everyone has the opportunity to go in now and start to actually bear their views on that. Um, and then depending on the feedback that the government receives, they may do kind of a another iteration of the strategy. Um, and they may even open it up for public consultation again. Um, because I think that they're, to their credit they're they're making sure that the strategy is as open and collaborative as possible um and they really see that there's a need to ensure that people and citizens have a, a role in shaping the policy uh, as it evolves so how long until we kind of start to see it be implemented probably a year a year and a half i would say um to be realistic um, and even then it's about you know how do we actually take a policy you know which is an outline of how, of how of kind of missions and, and kind of advice in terms of how we should operate and um, how do we take that uh, and actually put it into to work in practice and what are the incentives for organizations to do that um I don't know right now I don't know but I think I think we should all kind of watch the national data strategy as it evolves and if you weren't aware of it you know I'm glad I brought it to light for you but fundamentally what I would say is that we should not wait for a national data strategy to be published before we start to ask ourselves these questions um and I think any organization that's kind of forward thinking has already started to think about how do we decentralize our data how do we put the governance models in place that allow us to leverage it you know in an ethical way And um, and it's And I think that it's important that the government are moving at a kind of UK and national level in terms of sending out guidance. Um, But I think if we wait until, you know, a year and a half from now, I think, you know, to even start to consider about, you know, how how we should work better with data. And I think that that would be a real shame. Um, And I would like to think that organisations have already started to to consider it. Um, And it was interesting earlier that you said that, you know, everyone kind of is starting to become aware of the data that organizations hold on them. Mm-hmm. You know, even in, in government, you know, you have an identity in government, you know, if, if you've applied for planning permission, you know, there's, there's information about you, you know, if you've applied for building control, there's information on you. If you have applied for, um, you know, benefits, there's, there's information on you. And, it's just incredible the amount of information that that government departments actually hold on citizens. Um, but the thing is, there's no one picture of, of you in government because governments are not sharing data between themselves. So, um, although we, we kind of feel like, oh, the government knew everything about us because we've done all of the, these things, but it, actually the reality is they don't, um, they're not, they're not joined up at all. Um, you know, for, for the reasons that I talked about earlier in terms of blockers. Um, but it's, but it's, Kind of the the thing that we need to really think about and the thing that we need to care about is if they start to if they start to become joined up if open data sharing becomes more widely adopted if all of those kind of barriers start to come down um you know what do they do with that information and and do we have visibility of it and um, so it's, it's becomes really interesting and i know that like the conversation globally has people are becoming so much more aware of data and um, and, and what organisations or, are doing with it. Um, and I think that I, I don't want people to... I guess I would love for people to come at this with a really positive slant and to say that the government want to use data in a better way to actually improve lives and to, perfu- to kind of you know, improve society because they want to offer better services out to citizens um, and they want to better understand the needs of citizens. And it's all about doing it in a way that benefits society but that is also governed and safe. Um, and, and I don't want people to, I guess, get caught up in the idea of that, you know, the likes of Netflix and Facebook and whoever are kind of abusing their data um, and that they're uncomfortable with it. So I think we need to really be careful that we don't go down that rabbit hole of, of kind of being afraid of organizations holding our data and start to think about, you know, what are the positives to, to that data story um, and just kind of, I guess, educate, everyone educating themselves in terms of the possibilities and, and, how, and how we could improve society through through um, better use of data. So for me, it's a really exciting opportunity that the government have started to consider how can we do this in a better way? Um, and, and the fact that they've opened it up to public consultation as well, is just a reflection of, of how much that this is actually focused on people and not on business, businesses. So um, yeah, it's exciting times.
0: Yeah it'll definitely be an interest and I'll obviously be attending (laughs) it'll be (laughs) a panel session um even just discussing because this is it as well people think tech is is such a hard line you know scientific thing but it's it's all of that combined it's about people and how tech can help people and about the ethics behind it so it'll be a really interesting even just human interest and or human interest discussion that day as well.
1: Yeah definitely and I think it it kind of ties back into the kind of idea of, you know, what does the future look like? Um, The future doesn't, you know, look like a sci-fi movie. Um, It looks like, you know, people as individuals living in kind of smart cities, as as we're describing it. You know, cities that work better for the people that live within it because they better understand the people that live within it um, and they're more efficient. And it's all kind of connected and joined up and works in a way that benefits society. Um, and I think, you know, if you're if you're interested in kind of what what the world could look like, you know, for you as a citizen over the next five years and how government are using data, I would really kind of recommend that you start to look at, you know, some of the smart cities and um, work that's being done across the UK and Northern Ireland in terms of, you know, what does the future of our city look like with the use of data and um, or um, some cities who are kind of forward-thinking have already started to think about it and have already started to move on it, and um, so I would, you know, highly recommend giving that a Google and starting to to read about it because it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, and then with the specific focus um, for this year's AICon on fintech and like health tech and healthcare as well, is that something that was always planned for this year's AICon, or when did the organisation? of the event begin or you know have you purposely adapted the event around everything that is going on with, with COVID and just the world at the minute?
1: Yeah, so the it's a good question. Um so the the actual kind of structure of of AICON is actually more of a reflection on what we see as the strengths of Northern Ireland um in terms of where we see our our kind of real nation skill set and kind of where we're kind of punching above our weight with AI. Um, so we're, we're, we're kind of speaking from a KnoS perspective, um, we're heavily involved in healthcare, um, and have been kind of had the opportunity to to do quite a lot with data and AI over, over the period of the pandemic. Um, and I could say the same about, you know, other organizations in Northern Ireland as well. Um, for, for financial services, that's, really just a reflection again on on I think Northern Ireland being a real leader in in kind of leveraging AI for financial services use cases and you know Fiona Brown is is was involved in AICon last year and she's kind of a leading voice in AI in in Northern Ireland and she works kind of predominantly within financial services and she's doing some amazing work with some of, to be honest, the the, kind of the biggest organizations in the world that sit within FSI. Um, So she's kind of really um, in a unique position to to kind of talk about some of the things that that Northern Ireland is doing in that space, um, particularly her company. Um, And the for the public sector as well. Um, and again, it's it's kind of mostly a reflection on the type of work that Northern Ireland as an organization, as a, sorry, as a region is doing in that space. So we, we, again, we can kind of talk about it with great confidence. Um, and I'm not sure if I mentioned earlier, but one of the, the kind of streams within the conference is AI in the screen industry. Mm-hmm. So I find this incredibly fascinating actually. And I wasn't really fully aware of just how much Northern Ireland was doing to leverage AI um, in the screen and media industry. So um, that is going to be a session or kind of a series of sessions chaired by Tom Gray, um, the kind of CTO of Kainos, um, and also in his capacity and his role in Matrix NI. Um, so there's going to be a series of really, really interesting Kind of discussions that focus around um, how startups in Northern Ireland are, are using AI for the likes of kind of building characters and games um, and how they're using it to you know replace CGI in films um, and to be honest there's some incredible stories coming out, out of Northern Ireland in terms of what we're doing with tech and what we're doing in film and gaming that people might not have been aware of um, so again if you're kind of interested in gaming or the film industry or media or movies or Hollywood um, I would recommend kind of tuning in to, to listen to that. Um, and just <clears throat> one more thing on that is that um Austin is Austin Tanney the co-founder of AIcon and um, he is super interested in arts and culture and he really cares about you know society the ethics of AI and the impact on people um, and his kind of stream of, of kind of sessions is, is going to be all focused around that so, um, mine's a bit stuffy, he said, because I'm focused on government, um, but he he's kind of focusing on, you know, how is, how is AI being leveraged in really unique ways for music, you know, creating music, how is it being leveraged to, um, you know, in art um, and There's some really cool kind of arts and culture type conversations that are going to be taking place, um, including kind of conversations with Google um, about what they're doing. And also um, Jenny Kleeman, who is a journalist as well. Um, So. I think there's something for everything in this in this kind of two day conference, because there's arts and culture, there's like media, film, gaming, there's public sector government, there's kind of um, financial services um, and there is also quite a lot of stuff that just focuses generally on what the next steps are for Northern Ireland as a region in terms of how seriously we're taking AI and, and what investments we're going to make over the next few years to, to kind of further establish that as a, as a kind of focus for the region um, in terms of you know job creation and skills development and um, all of that good stuff as well so um, I think I think it will be a mistake to miss this conference.
0: <laughs> I think definitely the overwhelming point to take away from this podcast is that there is something for everybody. You know, it's not just about being a, a, a tech nerd or a tech geek or really into software development. Um, you know, AI con artificial intelligence is is everywhere, even if people don't realize it. And there's whether you're interested in, like you said, like government or politics or the arts and media or finance or health, um, you know, there's something, there'll be something for everybody.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and because it's remote as well, um, you can just kind of dial in, you know, at any time you want. Um so we're going to release the full agenda hopefully towards the end of this week and you can already pre-register. Um so if you're hopefully by the time this podcast goes live, you'll be able to go in and actually just sign up for the conference. Um and I really hope that you attend and I really hope that you, everyone enjoys it as well.
0: Perfect. Thanks very much, Ruth. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: No, it's just, I guess it's just if, um, you know, I would really encourage people to, to get interested in AI. I would encourage people to get interested in tech. And I think that if you don't think that you're, you have the right skills or you're not confident enough um, to apply for a, a role in, in technology, I would say, you know, just forget that, just do it. You know, there's, there's so much opportunity out there and you will do amazingly well.
0: Definitely, feel the fear and do it anyway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Ruth.
1: No problem. Thanks, Dave.
0: That's it for this week's episode of Tech Crab. for all things tech and business in Northern Ireland. Visit SyncNI.com. Have a good week.